Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. And today I come to you with an announcement. Canada has declared war on housing. You're really going to be dramatic like that. Eh? I was trying to. I thought it, that's a little worrisome for the first couple of minutes. Uh, you know, it's, it's uh, like when you get those um, Amber those, Alerts. Yeah, or, the, yeah, like remember when the Pickering power plant one went off? I yeah, it was that, that last was year that was or wild. Or... I think it was a couple of years ago. There's one in Hawaii too, where it was like that. There was like a like a bomb threat, like a bo- like a bomb. It's like imagine like the person who has the access to doing those alerts. Button. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, like the Pickering pl- power plant one was a pretty pretty wild thing to take place. Yeah, to be honest. Well, so is this not as wild? And uh, sorry, everybody. Welcome back to the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. Nick Hill, Daniel Foch, here to talk about real estate. You know, if you're joining us for the first time, that's not usually how we introduce the show. <laughs> just just a bit of a funny title. But if you are joining us for the first time or, or there's the first one of the first episodes you listen to, we really do appreciate it. Our goal with this show is to give away as much amazing free content as we can. And we spend a ton of time researching these episodes and putting them together so you don't have to go and read all the boring reports out there. And we can do that for you in a nice distilled manner so you can make better informed real estate investing decisions. Thanks for taking a chance on us. And if you are a returning regular listener, welcome back. We appreciate you. You're, you may be listening to this early on in 2024, New Year, New Me vibes. And uh, 2024, 2025, I feel are going to be a lot of opportunity for real estate investors out there, Dan. For sure. If you're a new New Year, New Me person and your New Year's resolution was to learn a lot about real estate, then you certainly come to the right place. So. <laughs> Let's start off with a review because we love reviews and it says not just about real estate, five stars by Take Own Responsibility. Uh, another another name. great name. Great name. <laughs> this podcast is excellent real estate podcast for Canada. It also comes covers some important information about US commercial real estate. But most importantly for me, someone not interested in building a property portfolio, I like their honest and objective evaluation of key economic data through the real estate lens. It provides valuable insight to the broader economic outlook in Canada. Very, very good review. I really appreciate that. that. Great summary of what we're trying to do here. So thank thank you. you. Thank you. Take own responsibility. Yeah. (laughs) That's a good one. Yeah. I hope you're taking your own responsibility for leaving us that great review. (laughs) Okay. Let's get into today's topic, Dan. So there's this new show on Netflix called Instant Dream Home. And I'm a sucker. I'll watch just about anything that has to do with real estate. Uh, And the concept for this show is simple. Find a great family with a home that needs a little bit of TLC. But for whatever reason, that family, whether it be health, finances, or time, the owners aren't aren't able to make those changes to the house. So in classic real estate dream makeover type fashion, this crew shows up. And uh, does it for them. Sounds pretty simple, right? Yeah, not too complicated. I feel like I've seen that on like every, isn't that like the premise of every HGTV <laughs> show, right? Yeah, kind of, kind of. But this one is a little different, has a little bit of a difference. They renovate these houses, get this, in 12 freaking hours, okay? And I'm not talking like they put up new light fixtures and some curtains. 
They do all that stuff, but they like fully paint it, landscape, hardscape, new bathrooms. I even saw an episode with a one episode. I did say they had a full new prefab kitchen in 12 hours. It's crazy. Yeah, it uh, it does sound absolutely crazy. So I guess the question that I would like to ask then is, why are you telling me this, given that I know what the episode is about? <laughs> well, I think it ties in nicely to what we are talking about today, which is, aside from the very dramatic opening I did at the top of the show, the, no, the, the war, I was going to say the new, but it's not new, it's old, the wartime Housing Act, because yes, if you've been listening to the show or read a newspaper or seen any headline or live in Canada, unless you're under a rock, you know that we're in a housing crisis. But the things with houses, homes, condos, purpose-built rentals, office towers, industrial parks, and essentially just any type of real estate in general, they take a long time to build. The timelines are brutal. One to three years to get an approval to build housing in Canada's largest cities and that time hold up is a huge problem. Time is our greatest enemy in this battle against affordability and housing supply because houses can't just be made overnight. Yeah, unless you're in that Netflix show, I suppose. Right? Yeah, exactly. And and maybe Netflix can do a show on, on solving the housing crisis 12 hours at a time. Yeah, I'm honestly not a bad idea. Like when they were talking about <laughs> I've col- already reached out. colonizing Mars, right? It was like they were going to turn it into a reality TV show. I mean, it seems like that might be the best way to crowdfund capital to solve a problem. <laughs> so, and when you mentioned like it, you know, that you're, at the beginning, your language was a little dramatic. I think that Slightly. I think that their intention with using the word war and wartime was to be dramatic with this announcement. You know, when there's a couple real wars going on around the world and, and Canada all of a sudden has war in, in a bunch of our headlines, it's uh, it is. It's definitely, definitely dramatic. Yeah. And so you've heard obviously heard the the rhetoric from the government. We need more housing fast. It's all about speed at this point because the longer we wait, the worse it gets. So let's look at some recent housing starts stats. Starts stats. So the pace of housing starts in Canada fell by 22% in November from the CMHC, Canada Mortgage and Housing Corp, who I would argue is probably the best person to tell us how housing so. starts are doing. Yeah. Also worth noting that when uh, Romy Byers, the, um, or Bowers, sorry, the uh, CEO of CMHC was asked what the plan was to solve the housing crisis, she said, there is no plan. And I would also argue that CMHC is probably the most likely to know whether or not there is a plan. <sighs> So there's that too. Yeah. Feels like she she's actually going to the IMF. So she uh, like she's she's leaving to go to the IMF. Oh, so it's she's kind of taking like, a position there. Yeah. Right? So wow. it's kind of like, like makes no you plan, wonder like, like is she jumping? Problem. Yeah, yeah. Actually, like yeah. you know, like jumping ship before I'm off to solve world hunger at the IMF. Now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually I'm I'm off to actually go after real problems <laughs> or, or sorry solvable problems yeah, that I can well. get credit for for fixing. I mean, it is kind of like a it's a tough job really to solve the, the most unsolvable problem when you have policymakers well, really and, not and, trying and not we to get make to that because it it's not you. just one problem right it's like yeah. 15 problems that have morphed together yeah so they they said the monthly seasonally adjusted annual rate of housing starts in november came in at 212,000 units down from 272,000 units in in october so again the pace of housing starts in canada fell by 22 percent in november from the canada mortgage and housing corp yeah, and a housing start is uh, defined at the beginning of construction work on the building where the dwelling will be located. So, like, pretty simple, but it's not 
like, hey, we've got these, you know, 100,000 townhomes in the pipeline that exist strictly on paper with land that we haven't fully acquired or serviced yet. Like a housing start is like, okay, this house has actually started, like, you know, there's been dug up, the foundation's been poured. That counts as an actual start. Yeah. And the drop came as the first annual pace of urban starts fell 23% to 195,000 units, while the rate of multi-unit urban starts dropped 27% to 151,000 units. So Yeah. And now remember, these numbers seem, they may seem big because we're talking about hundreds of thousands, but you know, in comparison to the 3.5 million new homes that CMHC says that we need, we're not doing that great. And that 3.5 number is likely increasing due to even just in the last week, Dan, we've heard new population numbers. Well, yeah, the most rapidly increasing. Yeah. The Um, most recent population growth statistics came out and there was 430,000 people in Q3 of this year. Now, now you could argue that a lot of that is um, student, like a lot of the big student population came in during Q3. So we'll see if that holds into Q4. But I mean, to be honest, I I think there's merit in saying, I don't care how you look at it or how you argue it. That's a massive number, regardless of of when, where, how, or why, right? I mean, half a million people, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Especially at the pace at which we're building housing. So Canadian Housing Starts came in at 212,000 annualized starts in November, representing a 22% month-on-month decline from October's firm level. Despite the decline, the six-month moving average of starts was up slightly month-on-month at 257,000 units. So the question becomes, does this show us that we're, and and it would be up to the the audience and you to decide on your own, but do you think that we're going to stay on that downtrend that just started, or do you think that we're going to stay on that that uptrend that has been happening for half of a year now. Yeah. Because it could just be seasonal. It could also be a reflection that the economy is so bad that builders are finally just like fully not building and even rental housing isn't buildable right now. I mean, you know, I think it could be a few things. And I and I want to have a much more exhaustive discussion about this nearing the end of the show when, when we kind of have everything to unpack. But, you know, strictly right now, you know, we're recording this five days before Christmas, mm-hmm. right? Seasonality does play a big role in, in Canada for for the real estate sales market, but also for the construction market, right? I mean, no one's going and pouring a foundation for a single family home in January when the ground is, is frozen, mm-hmm. right? So you will see less starts in certain times of the year. I, I mean, I hope it's just seasonal. I hope it's just, you know, a, a, a blip in the economy and 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 those kind of things are compounding on each other to make the starts look bad but then again when you look at stuff like the multifamily urban starts they've dropped 27 percent month over month to 151,000 units in november marking a retractment after strong performances from the two months prior urban single detached starts dropped seven percent so we're seeing drops across the board for a lot of this important stuff and you know, we've been talking a lot about... I'm going to guess. I'm actually just going to guess right now. Uh, this is my guess. Here we go. I think that it's an alarmist data point. I, and I'm like, I'm the bear, man. But I, I and when I saw this, because I've looked at it, and if you, even if you read the summary on their website, it's super confusing because it's like they're up and they're down, right? Yeah. They're, they're down on a month over month basis. Well, who's actually starting a house in November? 
Really? Yeah. Right? Like or December yeah, or January. Right. And yeah. so if you're a builder, you're not you're not like, oh yeah, guys, let's let's fire it up, dig a hole and you know, yeah. I mean you're gonna get the gloves on. It's gonna yeah. be cold out there. Yeah, your housing starts are more like like I think we could see a big increase in, in the spring of next year. Like it is so a month on month on month you know, if it's not seasonally adjusted, really, and I'm yeah. not a seasonally adjusting guy, like I would just say, let's look at the six month trend. And I'm probably, if I were to guess, I would say it's pro- probably more likely we're going to actually ride that long term trend into growth. I hope than, so. Yeah. Then seeing, yeah, then seeing this short term blip in the decline. So anyway, it goes on to say urban starts were down in four of 10 provinces. Ontario accounted for most of the national drop. And again, Ontario, probably the worst place to build a house in the winter. Like, I mean, in November, well, you don't see guys running excavators on these sloppy, wet construction. Like it's been raining for yeah. two months here, basically. Rain freeze, rain freeze, right? So it's yeah. like I don't know. Again, I, I, tough data point to really rely on. So anyway, Ontario accounted for most of the national drop. However, starts also fell significantly in Quebec and BC, and in contrast, starts jumped in the Atlantic, up three point two thousand units to um, 18,000 units lifted by Nova Scotia, while a massive gain in Manitoba boosted home building in the prairies. So I guess I could argue because Manitoba would probably have just as poor of a climate. I can't to, imagine to it's houses. a beautiful sunny day there right now. Yeah. Hey, it might be, uh, who knows? Yeah, um, probably equally tough to start a house. So yeah, based off all that, you know, whether or not we're up or we're down or it's a bit of a kangaroo market right now, the overall there overall there is a problem, right? And and we know that it's a lot of little problems that make up this big problem. It's the lack of labor, lack of skilled trades, the cost of construction, cost of construction materials, supply chain issues. And massive problem as well as the cost of debt with interest rates. And, th- and that's just to name a few, right? You, the, the more granular you get, the, the more problems there are. However, the federal government thinks it has a solution. And no, it's not using some new or groundbreaking technology like 3D printing houses or robots assembling prefabricated modular construction. No, no, no. We dug deep into the history books for this one, Dan. So this program existed 80 years ago and it helped the government build tens of thousands of homes fast and cheap. Okay, now right away when I hear those words fast and cheap together, when we're discussing construction, I think of those three overlapping circles. You've seen it, Daniel, what I'm talking about. Everyone listening, you've all seen it. The three circles, the first one is fast, the second circle is cheap, and the third circle is good, uh, which represents quality of, of work. And if you want all three of these things in, in a project, then you're basically in a paradoxical situation. You cannot, there's no overlapping of all three of these circles. So you can have good and fast, you can have fast and cheap, you can have good and cheap, but you can't have all three. Yeah, we, exactly. So for instance, a fast, cheap, uh, a fast, cheap project, the quality would suffer a cheaper, but good project is going to be slow and a good project going quickly will be expensive. And Dan, we talked about this a little bit in the course when looking at project cycles, and we found out that that, that little overlapping piece in the in the middle of the uh, three circles is called the iron triangle, which yeah. I always found kind of funny because it just means it's not going to happen. It does sound pretty hardcore. So yeah. so let's remember this as we, we dig a little deeper on what's going to go over this new ho- housing strategy. So with that being said, let's go on a on a fields trip. I mean, a, a history lesson, I suppose. <laughs> um, and back eighty years, Nick. 
80 years. I feel like that's the, isn't that the beginning of the Titanic? It was no. 84 years. Oh, is it? I don't know. Is that how it starts? <laughs> I, I have so. no idea. Ro good old Rose. Okay, let's take it back 80 years to the 1940s in Canada. In the early 1940s in Canada, there was a housing crisis. Canada was a few hundred thousand homes short and people were suffering back then. Multiple families would be living together in one dwelling. Kids couldn't move out. It was a lot of the same problems that we are experiencing today. So in 1941, the government set up a new federal crown corporation called Wartime Housing Limited. It's a badass corp name. Like, WHL. Do you think they used owner to do that? <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, yeah, the WHL, the Wartime Housing Limited League. I love it. The employees of WHL, Wartime Housing Limited, uh, were architects, engineers, and designers, and they were tasked with building cookie-cutter homes that could be built quickly. And this seemed to work. They had success. Wartime Housing Limited built almost 26,000 rental units for uh, war workers and for veterans, and it was... A successful yet temporary phenomenon. Six years later, CMHC absorbed and dismantled the wartime company. Many of these homes, dubbed strawberry box houses or victory homes, were built for returning war veterans. And many are still standing in Canadian neighborhoods across the country today. The style of homes used a square or rectangular foundation and had a similarity with boxes used to hold strawberries. So naturally, the strawberry box nickname took hold. The style had also been called Simplified Cape Cod, or again, Victory Houses, and that was mainly for government advertising purposes. And the areas where the houses were uh, constructed had small but wider lots than historically more narrow properties in some of these neighborhoods. And in this way... Because the houses were small, usually one story with a a half story and a, and a kind of vaulted ceiling, the strawberry box design gave an illusion of a smaller ranch style house with a sprawling property. So the idea is pretty simple. Uh, you've you've seen one of these houses before. You might even own one. Especially, like they're very popular among first time homebuyers right now because they've kind of trickled down to the to the entry level of the housing ladder. But the idea is, is simple. There's no reinvention of the wheel here. What worked 80 years ago in a very different time could work now as well, couldn't it? And so there's a, a quote from um, Sean Fraser, who is the Minister of Housing, Infrastructure and Communities. We're living in a housing crisis, but it's not the first time Canada has been here. After the Second World War, when many thousands of soldiers were returning home to be reunited with their families at once, Canada faced enormous housing crunches, Minister of Housing, Infrastructure, and Communities Sean Fraser said. The plan is for CMHC to provide standardized housing blueprints to builders, and these pre-approved housing plans are anticipated to cut down on the building time by having projects move through the municipal zoning and permitting process more quickly. Mike Moffitt, Senior Director of Policy and Innovation at the Smart Prosperity Institute, who uh, just he, he just launched a podcast himself called The Missing Middle Podcast, which is awesome. And we're going to try and get him on the show. So if you know Mike Moffitt, give him a shout out from us and tell him because we've, <laughs> we've tried him a couple of times and back and forth about it, but haven't, uh, haven't locked it in yet. So he proposed this idea directly to the federal cabinet during meetings in Charlottetown this summer and believes it could cut as much as 12 months off of construction times. I think builders and developers would be quite interested in this, particularly if it helps track through the approvals process, Moffitt said. 
And he went on to say that the program, for the program to be affected, it would require a wide catalog of these so-called blueprints. He said they certainly need to have, you know, a fairly extensive catalog of designs so that people aren't uh, forced to choose between, you know, one or two designs or nothing. Builders using this catalog of standardized designs should ideally lead to more favorable terms from lenders and even insurance companies. And I suspect that uh, there might even be some new credit products designed for homeowners and builders. So consultation with housing sector stakeholders on the new catalog will begin in January, focusing first on establishing a series of standardized low-rise construction designs, including modular and prefabricated homes before expanding to potentially high-density construction plans. So the Minister of Housing said the federal government will be focusing on home designs that are cost-effective, labor-efficient, and energy-efficient. Sean Frazier, the housing minister, said he is aiming to have the catalog of pre-approved blueprints ready for builders to see in the fall of 2024, which just doesn't seem soon enough from my perspective. And I have some other criticisms of of this whole thing, but anyway, we'll get there. But the minister could not provide an estimate of how many housing units he expects to see built through this program. The government is seeking designs that add density, such as multiplexes, mid-rises, seniors' homes, student housing, garden suites, and laneway homes. The catalog will feature multiple designs in each category to give communities flexibility. I think they should, rather than doing this, to be honest with you, I think they should just do the same thing, but a pre-approval system for the existing houses, the, all the last wartime houses, with in, in partnership with rehousing. You know what I mean? Shout and be like rehousing. Yeah, and yes. be like, we'll just pre-approve all of these. You know, because there's there's enough uniform houses across the country that you could be like, you could do the same thing, but with retrofit than brand new. Because we're gonna get to why, from my perspective, I can't see this in innovation being deflationary enough to actually incentivize builders to build a ton of ha- new houses at scale. Because the cost just and the big piece is, from my perspective is labor. But anyway, let's, yeah. let's well, get there. We'll get. We're almost there. So I mean, again, this 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 kind of sounds cool, right? We're looking at the history books for an answer. What worked before could work again. It's definitely like a, a very. Um, it's I feel it's like very it's, sensational. Well, policy. it's just it's just very romanticized, yeah. right? It's like hey, like you know this this got us out of trouble eighty years ago, but. And they loved like the, I love how like all the politicians now are becoming influencers and doing like their little walkthrough videos where they're like walking by houses, all of them too. Like this is not not a partisan comment. Yeah. We don't get political on here. This is just, yeah. They're all just like, it's politicians are influencers now, I think. Just like realtors. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, don't, don't forget though, right? Like what worked back then? Could it work now? We need 3.5 million additional housing units by 2030 to restore field affordability. That's coming from CMHC, the same organization that fully admitted to not having a plan to be able to do this. Now, we've used this quote before on the show from Mark Twain. He once said that history never repeats itself, but it does often rhyme. Well, will history rhyme this time or does a new world and a new generation deserve a new solution. Okay, now, Dan, now we're getting to the fun part here. Let's read this quote from John Love, uh, CEO of Kingsit Capital that I pulled from LinkedIn. And yeah, uh, John Love's just lighting it up on LinkedIn as, at all times. As always, as always, John Love. And if you don't know who that is, go follow him. He's uh, If you like real estate and economics, you'll You'll like Mr. Love. Show some love to to John Love. And uh, Dan's going to read this, and then we're going to... We've got several things to say, because I'm not sure this is going to be as as wonderful as as everyone thinks. But Dan, Mr. John Love. So John Love says on LinkedIn, 
as as he does. As he does. CEO of Kingset Capital, by the way, one of the biggest real estate organizations in the country. If only headlines built houses. First, a year of consultations and processes. Fraser added the government will begin consultations on the matter in January with the goal to have them available for developers next fall. But then... What about the myriad of municipal obstacles and taxes? It's not the product that needs fixing. It's the process, regulatory, and the excessive tax burden on housing that curses endle- that causes endless delays and drives up costs. So, John Love, I want to have you on the show to talk about this sometime. Come on the show, John. Well, you're, you gotta, we got to get John on the show. Welcome spot here. Okay, Dan, so that's the kind of bulk of the, the piece right there because there's actually not a ton of information out about this program because you know it's 80 years old they're just in the process of of redoing it there's a few things i want to talk about the first one is timelines all right okay so we're making an announcement at the end of 2023 we're saying that and i when i say we're i'm saying the government we're saying that the plans and everything that you need to go out and build houses as fast as possible that's going to be ready in in i don't know let's say eight months if you know if all things go very very well so what now we're not building you know we we might catch a little bit of the building period in 2024 like like a few months of that and then but like is anything going to get done next year with this like this just seems to be such a, as John said, it's such like if headlines built houses, this would be great. You know, consider this a, a skyscraper if that's the case. But to just say, hey, we got another year of planning this stuff, even though, it, again, in my opinion, we'll get to it because I feel like a lot of the stuff exists already with companies like rehousing or I don't know, any subdivision that exists already that basically has four different d- designs. Like, I don't care where you are in the country, go go drive to the suburbs and you're not looking at, you know, all of these and not they're not they're not beautiful, but you're not looking at all these custom homes everywhere. Developers have been doing standardized housing since ever. <laughs> That's just how developments are built. So, Dan, timeline, talk to me about about what you think is wrong with it. Yeah, so when I look at this it's just like it's very much a, a theatrical and relatively like spineless policy there like it's just nothing new here like mataby's been doing modular they built a city like they built milton like actually um, i think like their that development like multiplied the population of milton and they set up a factory in the middle of it and they built these modular houses and they and, and there's been a lot of innovation on making houses building them more quick more quickly more efficiently like you can count on the private sector to to innovate and to solve a lot of these problems. The government doesn't need to come in here and give them a catalog. Like literally, hey guys, here's a magazine of approved. It, it took us a year to build out this magazine. And uh, yeah, we actually yeah. took a lot of your designs and, and your best practices. Yeah. And, and so what the government needs to do or needed to do, and I think it's still like, it b- blows my mind that we're still playing with ideas like this as if they're going to to solve the problem, is to let the let the private sector do what they wanted to do five years ago, 10 years ago, rather than like, I mean, the building code is incredibly inflationary. Like, and don't get me wrong, like I understand certain things, energy efficiency, et cetera. But like there's, we're at the point where I think a lot of the, I won't even use a political spectrum to describe this. A lot of the checkboxes that people want for the betterment of society 
can't coexist. They're completely mutually exclusive. It's the good, fast, cheap triangle, right? It's, it's, do you want environmentally sustainable houses or do you want houses? Yeah. Right. Do you want the green belt or do you want development on service land that has been sitting there unused and, or, or, or actually maybe even a better way to phrase it is, do you want the green belt or do you want sprawl? Because if for the green belt to exist, people have to drive from the other side of the green belt to get into the city. Right. And, and so I think that you now have these factions that often exist in the same political sphere fighting with one another over problems that they've created for one another. <laughs> and, and it's fascinating uh, to watch from my yeah. perspective because it's just like, it, it really has become this, you know, that Negative Spider-Man, meme? you know, that Spider-Man meme where people the are like, yeah, looking at that's each other. what it is. Yeah. Right. And I think some, there are some exceptional individuals who are, who are, who've been critical of this to just say like this it's kind of the problem. Like they, they've kind of identified the problem. We need an expedited zoning system, but we don't need you to create a catalog of pre pre-approved development. Like a, uh, I can guarantee you a builder already has that, ex- that, uh, that catalog of designs that says the, like, these are the go, fastest homes, go, the cheapest we can ask, build. Yeah. Seriously, go ask yeah. anatomy, go ask uh, any of these massive, uh, at grade or, or, uh, high rise builders and say, Hey guys, could you just, give me the book because you have it already you know where the 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 cheapest things are and then all they need to do is stroke the pen and be like you can build this you can build this you can build this you can build this why why and i know the answer to the question it's because they want to be able to take credit and be like we built we came up with this thing but it's like the private sector is already doing it and all of these people who are far smarter than us in the world of planning architecture design etc are saying you just need to get out of their way yeah and and if if you're going to do something a political move it's just like cut the red tape. Don't seriously. don't add and, more. Don't don't repackage this book with more with a big red bow on it. Like it's 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 crazy. I mean, like you know, time. I think again, right? We 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 chat about this in in the show. Time is is the main enemy here, right? When you look at it, it takes multiple years to get zoning and and uh and planning approved for for some of these developments like think about any other emergency right i mean the government's admitted that the housing housing is is a crisis it's an emergency now any other emergency we act on stuff immediately that's kind of you know you don't call 911 and they acknowledge it and be like okay yep you're hurt okay you know we'll we'll we're going to work on a on a thought process to give you surgery and we'll be back there in 6 months or you're hungry or you're cold. Okay, well, we'll have food and blankets for you next year. This is like there are there's a there's a blatant problem. There's blatant solutions. The solutions exist right in front of my nose. Dan, to to drive here to the studio today, I had to drive past a massive new development. You know, just a couple kilometers away from your house here. Yeah, and it's four floor plans, and it's literally four floor plans. You know, and and three different shades of brick and two yeah. different shades of roofing tiles. And like this isn't innovation. The no, technology that they're like, describing already. Yeah, exists. that's what I was they saying. They just need it's to like, allow people to innovate. It's it's not like okay, you know, we're 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 reinventing the wheel here, guys. You know, we've got these these yeah. robots now that are putting prefabulous right. prefab stuff together, and housing's going to be built right. in in Netflix show style in in twelve hours. You know, we can have a full house built, and you'll move in tomorrow. You know, that would that would blow my mind. And if they're like, hey, we need a year to get this done, I'd be like. Yeah, that that makes sense. No one's ever done anything like this before. I mean, maybe in China you've got prefab stuff that's being put together extremely quick, but I know there's a lot of um, yeah, that's, code that's differences the, and stuff there. Right? That's probably where they're missing the the good part of the good triangle. Exactly, exactly. Right? Well, you are seeing like those buildings like falling down. Yes, I, there was a name. People were kicking a, their balconies out. There's a name for it. Yeah, it's uh, I can't remember. But anyways, long story short, I just I just find it fascinating that 
the government's basically coming in and being like, okay, okay, builders, multi-billion dollar builders that have, you know, built the the housing infrastructure across this country, you know, the 15 or 20 at the top that, that could really make a difference that have probably dozens of sets of drawings over the past, you know, several decades of what works, you know, is it slab on grade? Are we, are we doing multifamily? Cause there's a big push for multifamily stuff here, right? Okay. So, you know, Dane, even you and I have been on calls with builders that are actually designing and building multi-generational homes, which are essentially triplexes, but with three separate entrances and the ability to kind of open those doors up and have common space. So all of this stuff exists. We had rehousing.ca. Check them out if you haven't listened to that episode. Um, we had rehousing.ca in the podcast who have a catalog of designs to retrofit all of these, all the most common yeah. home types in major cities across the country. So again, which is, which is, which is a meaningful, and that, that to me is a meaningful, um, policy when you, when we know that we're overhoused, right? Like there's a lot of discussion also around how much vacancy there is, how many excess bedrooms there are, how much excess square footage there is. It's like, we're in a housing crisis. I mean, to me, it's like, it would be great if the, if the government actually treated this like a crisis and an emergency because it is. And so it's, it's like you could. Response time is the number one thing in an emergency. Well, and yeah, and you could just say, Hey, we're declaring this an emergency. If you're a municipal government, you literally have to approve all of these things. I mean, we've seen emergencies declared on other things in the past five years, right? That, you know, I, I would, I would call this equally socially damaging. And, and so this is, I'm just going to gonna read a couple of things because Alex uh, Bozikovic, who is a columnist, architecture columnist for the Globe and Mail, shared this article called What's Wrong with Pre-Approved Home Designs? They Don't Address Actual Problems in Housing. And um, and I really, I, I appreciate his insight on it. And the the article is an opinion piece written by Alan uh, Terramura, who's the past president of the Royal Architectural Institute of Canada. So relatively qualified to discuss this topic, I would say. He, said, he says, today the situation is far more complex. Rural land adjacent to cities is largely in the hands of developers who have a pre-established model for exploiting its commercial value, which does not include one-off non-market projects. So he's basically saying they're already doing this on yeah. this exploiting a value thing. Providing them with templates they can copy and paste into place is not likely going to change that. Then he goes on to say where where this would probably be most impactful, which is inner, inner city infill sites, on the other hand, are all unique and cannot be retrofitted with prototypical buildings. Yeah. The simple yeah. duplication of more complex buildings across the country would already be the standard practice if it was technically feasible. feasible. But climate, orientation, soil con- conditions, and the regulatory particularities of a site make outwardly identical buildings quite different beneath the surface. Like, I'll just finish the paragraph here. And and for any house designs uh, to be pre-approved, it requires the, the consent of hundreds of municipalities across the country unless the federal government is proposing to accommodate accomplish this by fiat. And and so this is is like really really great summary from my perspective. And there's one more thing I'll add that cuz he when he's summarizing it he's talking about the construction of pattern housing, but the one piece that I think we're going to do a whole episode on this by the way. I recently did a substack on it uh, just about like immigration and population growth and stuff like that. And the Bank of Canada recently put out some some information on it. But when you're talking about the wartime housing, because it's not just like the wartime housing act wasn't just a catalog of plans. It was also the the process to build all of those. And what was very opportune about the timing of when that took place was you had a bunch of soldiers, you know, who labor, right? You, you had a bunch of manual labor 
coming back to the country. Looking for work. Looking for work because they, they just were at war for years. And so what's absent from this, that is the problem that nobody wants to acknowledge for some reason is that, because it's not like, it's not even really, this one really, really bothers me. So, because every stakeholder, when you talk about population growth being completely targeted wrong, every stakeholder in it suffers, including, especially including the people who move here when they're being told that they should be they should be pay, paying three times the cost for a degree to go to some strip mall college with, with, with and graduate with a degree in something that isn't going to qualify them for the job that they need to actually become a permanent resident of Canada when you have i think it was like 2% of the of the those individuals moving to to Canada and working in the construction industry and it, like that's a huge policy failure and when 8% of the population works in the construction industry otherwise in Canada. And so, and and then we have this skilled trades immigration stream where you, if you have a skilled trade, you can immigrate to Canada. And they, and they're not, they weren't until like yesterday or like last month when they, when they finally were like, oh yeah, we should fix this problem, which it's just too late. And it's probably bad timing because now they're going to flood that market when you have a huge gap in the supply chain of housing, when all of these projects are being canceled, when you needed it, you need a, you need a labor cost and construction to be deflationary two years ago, mm. or actually in 2020, when COVID shot up the, the cost of construction of everything. So 455 people out of 1.2 million immigrants to Canada, 455 of them came through that skilled trades program, less than a tenth of a percent. Absolutely ridiculous. And 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 this goes back to is this is this even solving any problem whatsoever, or is this just repackaging a, a new name and almost a bit of a red herring saying, Hey, look, guys, we're doing stuff about housing. Here's here's a new thing and has war in it and, and we're taking it really seriously. It doesn't it it doesn't go back to, you know, the root of anything, right? When you start to reverse engineer the problem, we need housing. Okay, well, the main thing is we need people to build those houses. Then, and then once the houses are built, we actually need people to be able to afford to buy those houses. So are these houses now all of a sudden going to be way cheaper than all the other housing stock out there, right? The average housing, uh, the average house price across the country, the Canadian national average is $750,000. That's out of reach for a ton of people. So even if the labor, even if all those 455 people, you know, pulled up their bootstraps and, and were somehow able to build the 3 million houses that we need, 3.5 million houses we need in the next six years, who's going to be able to afford them? Because the that those numbers still don't make sense. So I think that, you know, there's going to, uh, you know, my, my final take it here and then I'll get your final take, Dan, and then we'll wrap up. My final take is, Yes, this is this is as a guy as a history buff, I, I love to see, you know, let's dig deep into the history archives and pull out the Declaration of Independence and see if we missed anything on there, right? What secrets have we have we missed? This is not one of them, okay? This worked in a different time, in a different place. I think it's a I think it's a very romanticized kind of cool concept. Um, but there's too many other issues right now that are being ignored for this one to really uh, for for you know for them to be like hey we're you know we have now blueprints that that you guys can build that already exists what about the labor what about the what about interest costs on construction what about zoning you know and then and then compile all that and this none of this stuff the first I bet you we it's a two years before we see one house produced under this act well 
the reality is that houses are already being produced by better, more innovative yeah. systems in the <laughs> yeah. private sector. Like, and this, and the same system, but just with a different name. Yeah, and I think that they're you're you're running a really dangerous like with all of this policy designed to attack just the planning element like there's multiple bottlenecks in the supply chain that that and and all you're doing is opening up bottleneck number one and piling it up up. into number two which is now going to be construction and when you move that bottleneck to construction i mean without without creating room for innovation in the construction space or creating room for deflation in the construction space and when i say innovation i mean we need probably to allow people to build products that aren't going to qualify for a lot of the environmental standards that the Canadian government wants to see or the Canadian building code wants to see. So no more poop recovery heat pipes. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. Have you seen that? <laughs> yeah. I hate those. They're like, I mean, $1,600 a piece. Well, it's just, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's un, it's unnecessary in my opinion. I Apparently mean, they pay for themselves in like five years. So I get it like from a cost perspective, but like it, it's still, but five, we don't have five years. Right. And so, and, Anyway, so like that's just an example. It's like, do we need a, this spiral of copper to recover or heat rain, from poop? rainwater collection? Uh, yeah, and, and like, I, I'm genuinely asking a question. Like, I don't, I don't necessarily know because when we had um, Conrad on here, he was talking about how you know cut, cutting corners in the building code isn't pro- probably isn't the way to innovate, and I agree with that, and 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 yeah. I agree with that because he was the one who told me. Like, in you know, I, I probably felt the other way before. Take to be his honest, word for it, yeah. yeah, but I will take his word for that. But if if we don't have enough skilled trades to, and, or, or just labor, it doesn't even have to be skilled trades. If we don't have enough labor, then you're just moving the bottleneck now all of a sudden. Now we have all of these builders who are like, giddy up, let's go. Canadian, like, let's assume this project is perfectly successful, right? I and and we, you and I are wrong and it That'd gets great. And it gets, and it, and there's a hundred thousand or, or a million houses in the pipeline that are approved in fall of 2024 because of this amazing program that the government put into place. Let's just assume that that takes place. Who's going to build them? And now all of a sudden you've got, I mean, we got 455 people ready. ready to build. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And so, and, and so with, with 3% of non-permanent residents working in construction, which is what I'm, I'm looking at the bank of Canada website right now. It says while Canada is welcoming more newcomers than ever, only 3% of non-permanent residents work in construction by comparison, roughly 8% of the overall employed population works in construction. Canada also has an immigration pathway that includes, qualified construction workers, the federal skilled trade program, but it accounts for just 0.1% of all annual PR admissions Come or on. 455 newcomers in 2022. At the same time, around 20% of Canada's construction workforce is set to retire in the next decade. So, That's- and somebody, to be fair, somebody quote tweeted me on this saying how they, they actually just, it's, um, let me just find it right here. So I think they, they just put out 10 or sorry, a th- they sent out another thousand yesterday and they sent out 1500 skilled trade specific invitations to apply for permanent residency in August. And so, you know, so it says this criticism was extremely valid until August when the government sent out. But it's like, okay, so now you have 2500 people. Sorry, yeah, that, that yeah, that's like, yeah, and and also like, <laughs> and and also that's that's August, right? So, I mean, and and I responded to this comment just basically saying like, look, the damage has been done. Like yeah. you can't just instantly overhire and make and also, sorry, 455 to 2,500 is not overhiring. This isn't like right. a small to medium business. This it, is literally a country's workforce where you need to build millions of complex products. Yeah, like, like complex. Like, like it's not like it's not a factory where it's where like you're making a widget. Yeah, and yeah, it's like oh, you yeah, stand here and push yeah, this button. Yeah, like, oh like, yeah, guys, we got to assembly a couple more boxes here yeah, on the assembly no, line. Yeah. Like 2,500 people will do it. Well, maybe the, maybe strawberry boxes, but yeah. Uh, so anyway, I 
there's a lot of policy decisions that the government has made, the federal government has made so far that um, I've been impressed with. Like, yeah. you know, the removal of GST. I think the adding $20 billion to MLI Select was yeah. huge. Was um, and uh, I, I don't think this is one of them. I just, I, I can't see, I, I think without, in the absence of, well, first of all, I think the private sector's already completely done a way better job at, at finding the cheapest way to build a decent house. I don't think that, I don't think that, that this is going to, going to, be any more innovative than that. And I think in the absence of making some concessions to the building code, which are not cutting corners, but that are removing things that are just too inflationary, that are just, that are want to haves, not need to haves, poop recovery, whatever, like, you know, whatever it is like that. And then I think we need people to build them. If you can't, if you can't increase the construction labor force, like massively, yeah. uh, the the guy was just on uh, Joe Rogan podcast talking about how this is in the States too, right? Yeah, I, I'd, I'd say my, my only closing remark with all this is I, I, I agree, I th- you know, I, we don't have to belabor it anymore. The takeaways from this are, one, this presents two huge opportunities for, for Canadians and for new Canadians, for, for Canadians that, that are investors or want to be investors. Guess who is in the private sector? You. Listening to this right now, you are part of that private sector. The private sector doesn't mean just the the Matamies and the Daniels and, and the massive builders out there. You are all part of the private sector, and it's now time for us to get up and, and make an actual difference because without the private sector, this won't happen. Number two, if you are considering going into a trade, boom, now is the time. If <laughs> I never, I don't think I ever say this. If you want to get rich quick, a trade is likely the best way to do that in the next couple of years, get in, get your apprenticeship, get that done as fast as possible. And you'll ride the next building, building wave for the next 10 plus years here in Canada, electrical, plumbing, carpentry, they are all going to be so. And even if you were framing or drywall and like, well, so anything like literally just like those, that skill set, we've got, we've got some people in the course that, that are contractors or trades guys. And they're like, yeah, what, you know, what, I, I'm not an investor. I don't know what to like. You're, you're in a better position than most investors I know. Cause you can actually go in and do the work yourself. Cause no matter who you are, or what you're doing in real estate, you're going to need skilled labor, whether you're building new infill, greenfield, putting in basement suites, ADUs, laneway suites, you name it. It needs people that have those skills and you know, the 450 or the 2,500 or whatever it is now ain't going to cut it. So I think although this is a nice, cute idea with with some sensationalized headlines, at the end of the day, I think it just goes back to uh, show that there is a massive opportunity here for the trades and for the private sector real estate investors here in Canada. Yeah, all the trades are the richest people that can't, that I grew up with. Like yeah. seriously, they it's because they they didn't go to university, they didn't rack up student debt, they were in the workforce during that period of time. Like they didn't get they didn't just get a four year head start because they didn't go to university. They got an eight year head start because they they also didn't cost. well they also yeah they also didn't pay money yeah that whole time they were making they were money making money and they got in and they bought a house during that period of time and so they got you know eight years or four years of appreciation and rent and whatever. A lot of them were building portfolios, building sweat equity into the houses. So. If unemployment rises to six and a half percent or seven percent as the government's forecasting next year, and you get laid off, go walk onto a construction site if you're not if you w- weren't laid off from one prior, and go make some money. Honestly, and and I think you and I, you know, we're really passionate about this, but I think it you cannot like it. It has been so undersold how much success you can make it, ha, ha, achieve in life by doing work in construction. Like, yeah. and and it's it's probably one of the greatest 
failures of this country that we that we didn't let people that we didn't encourage the young people to do that in in our in our generation yeah. i really think for I mean, some for some reason i don't know 10 15 20 years ago it became cool to wear a suit and and not mm-hmm. to wear to wear boots to work kind of thing and and, and that was a that was a sh- like a paradigm shift in in the future of this country because now we've got all these everyone making nothing right like like not producing anything and and making you know 60 70 grand a year when you could be making triple that of money that amount of money and actually producing something as yeah. well so anyways huge opportunity for the trades huge yeah we gotta get for, uh, for investors. your boy mike holmes on the podcast to talk about it mike yeah. if you're listening so we'll see you soon okay thanks so much for listening everybody the canadian real estate investor podcast is for entertainment purposes only and it is not financial advice Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317, agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.